Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Actually, we went to we went to Jan, uh, um, Williamsburg. I don't know if anybody's gone to Williamsburg here. It's pretty, it's pretty of a neat place. I like going there, you know. And I went into the church, and it was really weird. First of all, that people are buried in the church. You know, they die, they dig up part of the church aisle, and they bury them and put a slab there. So as you get in your pew, you're walking across somebody's grave. You know, that's how that's where they buried them in, in the churches. Um, but they had seating assignments in the colonial churches. And depending on your rank and what you were, you had an assigned pew that you sat in. And the more important you were, the closer you were to the front of the church, you know. So, like, they would show, like, you know, this is the pew for, you know, so-and-so, and and this was so-and-so's pew. and So that's sort of of a different way of, because it was a very social thing back then. Everybody went to church on Sunday morning. So, you know, if you were the governor of the whatever it was, you had your assigned pew, and if you weren't there, everybody knew it, you know? Sort of interesting. Anyways, uh, let's start in a word of prayer. Father, thanks for this night, and I pray that you'd open our hearts to what you'd teach us. Thanks for this wonderful little book here we're going to study this next couple of weeks. Um, I pray that you would challenge us from its pages, and it would change the way we think about things. In Christ's name, amen. All right, one of the book of Titus, which is one of the short books in the New Testament. This is the third one of Paul's pastoral epistles. It actually was written second. First, Thess- first Timothy was written first, then Titus, then Second Timothy. So this is right in the middle there. It was probably written right in between those two books, so that would place its writing in the early 60s, somewhere around 62, 63, 64 A.D., don't have an exact date. Of course, it's not really important whether we have an exact date or not, but that's about the time it was written. And it was written to the second one of Paul's two sons in the faith. And remember, we talked about the fact that after Paul's lengthy ministry, he only had really two people that he could call his sons in the faith, which is probably a better, almost a better track record than most of us. You know, a lot of us would like to think at the end of our lives, we have hundreds of people that, you know, could take our place and carry the baton forward. Paul had two. And uh, Christ had 12. Actually, had 11, right? 11 of them that really stood up. Now, there were some more that were on the periphery. One of them, Matthias, became one of the 12, was numbered with the 12, but there really wasn't that many. Which shows that the making a disciple and reproducing yourself spiritually is tough tough work. It's kind of hard to do that because a lot of people are drawn away. And we talked about, you know, for example, last week Demas got sucked back into the world and some of the others sort of fell by the wayside. And uh, that's just one of the one of the realities of spiritual existence. I told you before, I've seen them come and go in the church. I've seen them come in the front door and stick around for a while, and then they're, they're gone. You wonder what happened to them. And sometimes they've fallen away. Sometimes there's sin in their life. Sometimes they're Christians, and 
Sometimes they never had it. They just looked like they did, but they never really did. But these were Paul's two sons. And whereas Timothy was left to set in order the things in the church of Ephesus, Titus was sent to set in order the things in the church of Crete. The churches, plural. All right? So the churches of Crete. Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Okay. What's the big point there? What theme has reared its ugly head again? Election, right? Can't get away from it. You, you, every time you turn around, you just run into this thing. But what Paul has done here is he's masterfully, not, I mean, we say Paul masterfully did this. Of course, we know Paul didn't masterfully do this. It was the Holy Spirit. But you see is a masterful merging of the divine and human components. Both of them are here. And you can't cut them apart. You can't, you can't untangle this. This is a knot that's not meant to be untangled. Paul says he's a bondservant of God, a slave. Um, Paul's will was whatever God wanted. That's what Paul wanted to do and wanted to be. According to the faith of God's elect. Now that, think about it. The faith of God's elect. So let's split that apart. What does the faith seem to refer to? Who's the one with the faith? According to the faith of God's elect. That seems to imply what about faith? What? Well, it comes from whoever the elect are, right? It's their faith. At the surface, on the surface, the faith of God's elect seems to imply it's their faith. Now, what do you know from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? Really, that faith is from God. But from the human perspective, what does God's elect at some point in their life do? They make... a faith choice. Apparently, from their own free will, which we realize is a sort of free will. It's not a perfectly free will, because your will, our will, is subject to bondage, it's subject to sin, and unless God overcomes that bias, we will never believe. But Paul is trying to get this point here that and I, and I think you see this as we work through these, you can't separate these two things out. You can't, you got to look at it from both perspectives at the same time without trying to go too far down one side or too far down the other side. Is it God's elect? That implies His choice, right? God's chosen ones. But God's chosen ones do what? Exercise faith. You can't say, well, I'm God's chosen one, but I don't need to exercise faith. No, it doesn't work. 
And you can't exercise faith unless you're what? One of God's chosen ones, all right? You can't do that. So when you witness to people, don't get hung up on, well, I don't know whether you're one of the elect or not, and I'm not sure you're in the book of life. And Don't get into that. All you know is if they believe, what are they? They're elect, right? So the issue is not whether they're elect or not. The issue is whether they believe or not. I can't help you any more than that. You know, you got to be a little bit unbalanced here, <laughs> mentally unbalanced in a good sense. You just you can't you can't take one side or the other. But it's according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth. Who's acknowledging the truth? The elect. What truth? Well, God's told them, right? Truth. And we, we here, here's something that, that we really need to stop and think about. Last week we made the comment that people believe what they want to believe, don't they? Sometimes there are people out there that are so biased and so... They, they draw the, con the conclusion and look for evidence to back it up because they want to believe a certain way. They believe what they want to believe. An unbeliever believes what they want to believe about God. So if they're going to ever believe the truth about God, what needs to happen? They have to be converted. God has to do a work in their heart before they can believe what is really true. Because let me tell you something right now. The average pagan in the world wouldn't know what truth is if it came up and slapped them. They don't know what truth is. Go to Oberlin College and sit in a philosophy class and ask what is truth, and they don't know. They have no idea what truth is. And they don't want to really know what truth is because once they find truth, the search is over, the class is done, you can go home. It's something you always seek but you never find. What did Paul say back in 1 Timothy 3.17? Always searching and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The world is full of people that are going to spend their entire life searching for the truth and they will never find it. Because even if they did find it, they wouldn't recognize it for what it is. Let's say you get invited to the Jerry Springer show and he asks you, what is truth? What would you tell him? What would you tell him? Bart, you'd love it. What, what, Jerry Springer, okay. Bart, you know, you say you have the truth. What's the truth? What would you tell him? I mean, not... not you know, if you said the word of God is truth, the Bible is truth, what would he do? Well, he'd, he'd fall on the floor rolling around in laughter and, and they would probably have a bunch of psychologists call in and offer their services to you. Or the white coat guys would be trotting in. Why is that? Because he's stupid? He doesn't recognize the truth. The world doesn't recognize the truth. They don't understand the truth. We, notice what it says there, acknowledge the truth. 
What does acknowledge mean? You recognize it, but more than recognize it, you accept it and act upon it. It's not just, oh, that's true and that's false. There's, a, there's a, an action point that needs to be done by us. So you see here is that we exhibit faith, but God elects us, but we acknowledge the truth, but God is the one who gives us the ability to understand the truth, which accords with what? Godliness. What's godliness? Being like God. I mean, that's, that's God-like. What's God-like? Well, what does the Bible tell you God's like? You know, that's what you're supposed to be like. And again, this goes back to the B theme of these books, right? The B theme is sound doctrine produces what? Godliness. And unsound doctrine produces ungodliness. So if you trot into a church and they're acting in an ungodly way, what should you assume about what it is they believe? It's not the right, it's not sound doctrine. Yeah, go somewhere else. Because that's not sound doctrine. Sound doctrine produces godly character, always. And what we do, the deceitfulness of sin is such that we can think that we know the truth when we are as false as the day is long. We think we got it right when we got it wrong. Sin is very deceptive. And that's why you've got to constantly be exposed to God, exposed to His Word, exposed to His Holy Spirit, asking God, teach me, show me, help me to understand this. Don't allow me to believe something is wrong. Something wrong. Don't allow me to believe something that is wrong. Because always truth and always the, the sound doctrine always produces godly character. Christ-like character. And if you see somebody who's overcome with bitterness and resentment and things like that, that's not from above. In fact, a good, a good passage on that is over in James chapter 3, where it says um, here, Who is wise and understanding among you? 13, 3.13. Who's the wise guys among you? That's not negative. That's just, who's wise? Who's... You want, you want to stand up and count yourself as a wise and an understanding person. How do I know that? Let them show by good conduct. That his works are done in meekness of wisdom. Good conduct and works, that's, that's godliness. That's godly character. That's holiness. But if you have what? Bitter envying and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and do not lie against the truth. So what is so this is in distinction to the meekness of wisdom. What is the opposite of meekness of wisdom? Bitter envy and self-seeking. You want to go and make yourself up to be the expert. Remember what I said earlier in First Timothy, they desire to be teachers of the law and they don't know what they're talking about? And I've run into a few of them in my life. You can't tell them anything. Well, the Bible says, well, I don't think the Bible says that, and I know as much as you do about the Bible, and who are you to tell me what the Bible says? And, you know, these are those who think they know what they're talking about, and they don't. Because how would the godly man respond? 
or woman? How would they respond? They wouldn't respond by setting themselves up as the expert, would they? Meekness of wisdom. This wisdom, the wisdom that is self-seeking, the wisdom that is envious, does not descend from above, but is, I love this, earthy, sensual, demonic. What's earthy have to do with? Of this world. It's, it's the kind of stuff you find on Jerry Springer. It's uh, sensual. What's sensual have to refer to? Having to do with this life, you know, this, you know, the, the, the physical life and demonic. Well, that's a no-brainer, right? That's from demons. So when you walk into a church, you walk into a group of Christians, they're acting ungodly, and they want to somehow say that their ungodliness is what the Bible says. You missed it. That's not what the Bible says. It's earthy, it's sensual, and that's demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Envy, what's envy? In this case, what is envy referring to? What are they envious of? No. Each other. They're envious of each other. Get a bunch of PhDs in the room and let them have a discussion. I've seen that happen. It's sort of fun to watch. People who think they're right and think they're God's gift to Christianity and think they have all the answers, put them together and they're trying to outdo one another. And self-seeking, what does that refer to? You want everybody to look at you. Oh, there's Mr. Know-it-all. There's Mr. Bible Knowledge. There's, there's Mr. Has All the Answers. Let's go see what he says. That's, that's catering to the, to the flesh. That's catering to pride. And where does that kind of wisdom come from? Demons. But the wisdom that is from above is what is first what? Pure. What does it mean to be pure? Holy. Peaceable. What does that mean? Yeah, you're not out to argue about everything. It goes back to the first Timothy and second Timothy and Titus, where you're not arguing over stupid stuff that doesn't make any difference. It doesn't matter. Know where to know what hill to die on. Gentle, what's gentle have to do with? Not trying to blow people away. You know, if you're extremely knowledgeable about something, it's easy to just blow people out of the water. Did Christ do that? Now, he could have stood up at any occasion to the group and said, you're all a bunch of dummies, you don't know what you're talking about, you're idiots, I got the answer. And He would have, right? But he didn't act that way, did he? He didn't approach people like that. He was gentle. And it says willing to yield. What does it mean willing to yield? Willing to yield. I'm right, but I don't need to make a deal of it, all right? 
I don't, I don't need to argue and fight about it. And I'm willing to consider, and I think this is the point, I'm willing to consider the possibility that you're right. Now that doesn't mean you don't have strong convictions on things. There are some things you don't yield on. But let me ask a question. Does it do you any good to argue with the Jehovah Witness who comes to your door over the deity of Christ and raise your voice and yell and howl? No. You're not, you're not. That's not Christ-like. Doesn't mean you don't tell them the truth, but sit there and argue about it and fight about it. And no. That's not what Christ did. Full of mercy and good fruits. That has to do with the character. Merciful. What does it mean to be merciful? You care about somebody else's condition. Without partiality. What does that mean? You're not taking sides. You're not, you're not playing one. You're not saying one thing to Mr. Big Wealthy Man and something else to poor woman. You're saying the same thing to everybody. You're, 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 and that's what, without hypocrisy, that, that's without a face mask on. Think of the old Greek theaters where they would hold a mask up in front of them to, to give an idea of whether they were sad or happy or whatever. It's taking the mask off and just being yourself. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Peacemaker. So when you walk in, a, in when you are around a Christian and all they want to do is argue and scrap and fight and promote some theological notion they have and if you don't believe their way, they, oh, that's all they want to talk about, that's all they want to, where are they getting at? They're not getting it from God. They're not getting it from God. Godliness is your character. And hope of eternal life. What's hope? A present certainty of a future reality. I'm going to have it. I don't have it yet. Which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Who did he promise it to? You didn't exist. Who did he promise it to? They like didn't exist. The son. Who God promised to who? Well, I mean, think about it. Well, who was around before time began? Well, let's see. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So it's one of those three, right? It's got to be one of those three because there wasn't anybody else around. And God the Father is eliminated because he's the one who does the election. So who did he promise us to? Christ. Now isn't that cool? Think about that. Before time began, God promised Jesus Christ you. He didn't say, you can have them if, if, if. He promised them to Christ and God cannot do what? I mean, if you can grasp this, it'll keep you up at night. God promised you to Christ before time began, and that is an inviolable 
unchangeable, irreversible promise, which means you can't miss heaven. You can't. If you're one of the elect, you can't miss it. Nothing you can do is going to be able to thwart the promise of God. Because he cannot do what? Lie. Eternity future, God is not going to say, well, I'm sorry, Jesus, but I changed my mind about a few of them. They were more bothered than they were worth. No. Before time began, we were promised to Jesus Christ as a gift. It's irreversible. Can't be changed. Can't be undone. He promised us before time began. Now, what aspect of election and the salvation process is that referring to? God's part or our part? That's God's part, right? God, I mean, there's nobody else there, right? So this is God. God promises to Christ before time began. But then look what it says. But in due time, now, when's that? Well, that's now, right? Manifested his word through preaching. So how did the elect get saved? Through the preaching of the word. And when did God figure out how to do it that way? Before time began. If you really get a hold of this, these few verses here, you're going to save yourself a lot of theological headaches. All right? You're not going to go down the hyper-Calvinistic route. That's the route that says if you're in, you're in. If you're not, you're not. So I'm not going to worry about preaching. I'm not going to worry about witnessing. Because if they're elect, they're in. If they're not elect, they're not. And it doesn't matter. And nothing I do is going to make a difference. So I'm just going to go off and do my own little happy thing. And I'm not going to witness to people. And I'm not going to share Christ. Because it doesn't matter. Well, what did Paul just tell you here? How do the elect get saved? And who does that? Somebody has to do that, right? So you can't be a hyper-Calvinist and be true to these verses. Nor can you be a hyper-Arminian and say, well, it's up to me. You know, if I'm going to, if my neighbor's going to come to Christ, I've got to figure out some way to force them into the kingdom. I've got to talk them into it. I've got to figure out some way to reach them. And if I can find that little, the little trick, the little doodad, whatever it is that can hook them, I can save them. Because what does it say here? When were they chosen? Before time began. I'll tell you what, if they're not elect, there's nothing you're going to do that's going to change the mind of God in the eternity past because it's a done deal. So don't get hung up on that. What are you to do? Preach the gospel. God knows who the elect are. And don't get hung up on, well, you know, I don't know if they're elect or not. I better not witness, witness to them all. How do you know? Paul didn't go around trying to find the ease on people. He didn't try to go, say, I'm just going to go preach to the elect. He didn't know who the elect were. He preached to everybody. He persuaded all men. And who responded? The elect did. And you've got an element that comes from eternity past where you were chosen, but in time you responded, you had faith, you acknowledged the truth, but even that faith and that acknowledgement comes from a work of God in you that brings you from death to life 
unless you see and understand truth. But you still respond. You got to think through this a lot. But don't allow yourself to go down one side or get... It's all, it's all in the balance here. And don't worry if you don't figure it out, because quite honestly, no one's figured it out. As soon as somebody tells you they figured out election, they don't know what they're talking about. Because you can't, there are some mysteries here that I, I don't understand. But this is one of the passages in the Bible that you have to deal with. Remember I said, I don't care where you land on election, you just got to deal with all the passages, all the verses. Don't pick the ones you like and forget the rest. You've got to somehow explain what Paul is saying in these three verses. The, command, the word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. The preaching was committed to Paul. What do you think he means by committed to him? Commission, entrusted. Think about that. God commissioned you as a holder of the truth. He's given you something very valuable. How do you how do you use it? How do you treat it? A lot of tender love and care, but you give it away. You protect it, and you preach it. Paul said, my preaching was committed to me. It was entrusted to me by the commandment of God our Savior. What's that notion of a commandment? Did Jesus show up to Paul and say, you know, Paul, you know, I've been thinking about this, and i sort of like you to be a preacher. What do you think? How to work out? You're in, buddy, and this is what you're going to do, and this is... And don't give me no lip, boy. You know, this is what you're going to do. No lip. Did Paul have a choice? No. And don't let anybody tell you Paul was in it on some ego trip. Paul was not a preacher because it was an ego trip. If he had any reason to be a preacher other than God called him to do it, he, he needed really some serious psychological help because it really ruined his life being a preacher, right? Jail to jail, beatings stonings, everything else. That's not exactly a career option you'd choose if you had one. It was committed to him. And Paul saw the gospel as a divine trust, as something extremely valuable that was committed to him, that he was obligated to treat with respect and with care, and he was obligated to share it. Now that'll shoot the legs out from a hyper-Calvinist, right? They've been given the truth. What's God expect them to do? Hoard it? They're to share it. They're to share it. Finally gets around to addressing the book to Titus, a true son in our common faith. Another true son. Again, Paul had two of them. Titus, Timothy. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. 
well, this is pretty easy. What was T Titus supposed to do, just like Timothy? What was he called to do? And what was lacking? Well, lots of stuff, right? Um, Paul doesn't specify, well, here's the five or six things that are lacking. It's just whatever's lacking, you're to fix it. Now, what would that imply about Titus? What would imply about Titus that Paul sort of trusted him, didn't he? I mean, it implied to me that if Paul tells him to set things in order, that Paul entrusts him to set things in order. That's, think about that. How would you like Paul to say, yeah, I'm sending Schaefer over there to uh, take care of things. I'll tell you, that, that'd make you think twice, wouldn't it? Uh, I can't come, but Timothy can come, and when he comes, it's good as me being there. When Titus comes over there, it's as good as I'm there. That's what the true sons are. So, what does that imply about Titus and Timothy? How long have they known Paul? A long time. That character. Paul entrusted him, and... Paul, Paul, it's Paul straightened me as a guy who didn't give away his trust like this pretty, pretty quickly. I mean, he's the one that said, lay hand suddenly on no man, right? So the fact that he would entrust Titus and Timothy said vimes about Titus and Timothy. Paul entrusted them. He knew they were trustworthy. He knew he could depend on them. And that's why he gave them this. Evidently, Crete had a lot of churches. And um, it needed to have some things set up. Where do you think the Cretan Christians came from? Jews. And in fact, if you go back to the day of Pentecost, and Pentecost you had them from all over the place, right? And Crete was pretty close, close to um, there. It was on the route from Palestine over to Rome, you go by Crete. In fact, on Paul's fourth missionary journey where he is taken to Rome, where do they land to do some things? Well, in Crete. In fact, Paul tells them he ought to winter there, but they didn't. They went on and got caught in the storm. But Crete was a large Roman colony, and it had many churches, many little towns and villages. And Paul says, I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking. So he had to do something. He had, it was like Timothy. Timothy. Why was Timothy in Ephesus? Well, there was a bunch of things that needed fixing, and Timothy was going to do that. Why is Titus in Crete? Well, there's a bunch of things that need fixing. And it's just a general statement. And he was to appoint elders in every city, as I commanded you. Who's the elder? Pastors. Leadership. So wherever there's a church, a group of believers, there's to be a leadership. Now, in the, in the church in those days, how many elders did you have in a church? Several. You didn't have one chief potentate that everything he said was, that's the way it is. 
That's how we run our churches today, which I think is not a very good thing. We have churches today where there's one guy who runs everything, and if you don't agree with him, you're out. You need multiple pastors. You need multiple elders. There needs to be checks and balances. And Paul says, I want you to appoint elders. Think about this. What's implied there, appoint elders? What's the implication? They need help. They needed leaders. Pardon? There's a lot of them that needed leaders. How'd you pick the elder? But who did the picking? Titus did. Titus didn't go and say, okay, let's take a vote and see who the pastors are, all right? That's how we do it today. We vote. No. Titus was to appoint elders. So he had to know who they were, and it was his duty to select the right men to put in that position. It wasn't up to the congregation to figure that out. It was up to Titus to figure that out. Now, today, of course, since we don't have apostles walking around to appoint elders and that, how should we select elders for our church? By their character. You go back to the character qualifications. Yeah. And technically, that's not a biblical model. Technically. All right? Technically. Paul is saying the biblical, in, in this case, you were to appoint elders. Um, when Paul, when he went into a city and he preached the gospel and the church was born, what did he do? Yeah, he appointed the elders, right? He's the one that picked the elders. And again, here's the thing that goes back to spiritual leadership. Spiritual leadership is all about character and nothing about what we consider to be strong natural leadership characteristics. One of the, you know, I have a little bit of a jaded view of a lot of church leadership things. Because what do you get? When they, get, when they have a church leadership conference, who do they pick? Not their friends. Who's there? Who's at your leadership council? That that thing you went to on leadership. What kind of leader? Business leader. Business leader. Go. Let's find the ones with a successful business. They're the ones we want to put up there. You know. So you get all these guys from. Now it's not mean. I'm not trying to demean that they're not godly people. I'm not implying that. But. When the world thinks of business of, of leadership, what's it thinking of? Financial success. Let's go find. Let's get the head of Coca-Cola in here. Let's get the head of whatever in here. You know, and they have people that may have. They may don't even know what a Bible is, but they got them in here because they exhibit leadership. And the Bible is saying that leadership, folks. Leadership has nothing to do with whether you're successful or not. It has nothing to do with that. Leadership has to do with character. Character and character. Was Christ successful? 
from the world's perspective, was Christ successful? No. So why do you want to go to the world and have them tell you what a good leader is? If they can't, if they can't get Christ right, they can't get the other stuff right, right? Now, I'm not saying there, there aren't certain leadership principles that are helpful, but look, let's... We have this mentality in the church today that somehow if we can train our pastors to be good leaders like the world has good leaders, we'll have big churches and we'll be successful. Is that true? No, it's not. Because you go through the Bible and the Bible says leadership is all about character. If you took David and you took Saul and you put them side by side, which one was the leader? No, you know the answer. Which one was the leader? Which one looked like a leader? Saul. He stood head and shoulders above everybody else, right? I mean, he exuded confidence. He exuded that. Now, from God's perspective, which one was the leader? Why? Character. He had character. He had something that Saul didn't. He had character. Folks, I'm just saying as best I can, church leadership is all about character. It's all about character. We have elders here? Yeah. They're the pastoral staff. They're basically somewhat appointed and then voted on by the church. Do we follow the strict biblical model? No, there's not many churches that do. Because we don't have apostles anymore. So you have to do some... You know, you have to accommodate to some extent. But yeah, we have what you consider, the pastoral staff here is really considered the elders. Um, we don't have official elder designations. There are some churches do. MacArthur's church, they have elders. You have an elder board, and you are, you are appointed to that board by the elders. The elders will find godly men, and um, what it's interesting when you look at the process that they go through out there. John MacArthur talked about it. If you're an elder, if you're gonna, if you want to be an elder at Grace Community Church, you would have to, you know, um, let them know of your desire to be an elder, right? He who desires the office of a bishop desires a good thing. All right. So you have to exhibit a desire to do that. Then they, they're going to look very carefully and say, are you in a ministry and are you ministering? Years ago, trotting in off the street saying, hey, I want to be an elder. Oh, good, we'll bring you in. No, are you in a ministry? Are you ministering? Because what do elders do? Ministry. If you're, you, know, you don't want this honorary elder emeritus that sits around and does, he, he attends board meetings, but he doesn't do anything in the church. Yeah, elder at large. No. At, at Grace Community Church, an elder is someone who does ministry. All their ministries have over them an elder, or more than one elder, but there's an elder over every single ministry in that church. All right? So are you doing it? And then you have to go through an application process where you're interviewed, and your family is interviewed, and your friends are interviewed, and the people you work with are interviewed to see if you meet qualifications. All right? And that weeds a bunch of them out. All right? 
Then you get down to a handful that, that have made it past that, and then you get to go through an ordination process that is awful. You get to go before the elder board, and they get to ask you any Bible question they can think up in their little brains, and you've got to, it's almost like going through an ordination process. It's like being called before the, you know, an elder might say, uh, could you give me uh, all the 12 uh, minor prophets and when they ministered and who they ministered to? And give me a synopsis of each one of their books. I mean, they, they grill you theologically. You know your stuff. Or you're not, you're not on the elder board. And then you get to serve a one-year probationary period where they want to make sure that you're up to snuff. And then when you're done with that, if you've survived through all of that, then you might be appointed an elder, and there you're appointed an elder for life until either A, you die, B, you choose to step down, or C, you become disqualified. Yeah. But it's a long, it's a rigorous process. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it, the, the, what you go through to be an elder out there. But you know what it does? The people who make it through that, what kind of people are they? They're, they're qualified. They're godly. They, they've been through it. They've got the character. And that's a big deal out there. Character. What is their character like? What we do in a lot of churches today is we find 12 living, breathing bodies that are too dumb to say no, and we vote them in, right? I say that facetiously because in some churches, like, boy, you know, we need to have five deacons. You know, we got four guys in the church. Well, they all qualify. Let's vote them in. Whether, whether they're qualified or not, you make them part of the leadership. That's disaster. If you only have one elder, that's better than having four unqualified ones. Character. It's all about character. It's all about character. And then, by the way, out there, once you make it to that, every year the congregation has to approve your continued service as an elder. And John MacArthur is no different. His name is on the ballot along with everybody else's. Every year they have to approve that, yes, we want these men to be our elders. I mean, it's a rigorous process. It's a long process. And it's interesting, I was listening to one of the, I was listening to somebody who, who's one of the pastors out there. He said an interesting statement that I, I thought was really interesting. He said statistically only one out of ten Christian men will ever make it to any level of church leadership. Think about that. He's talking about deacons or elders. And he's only one out of ten men, biblically, biblically, are qualified to be leaders who have not disqualified themselves through some failure or some action or, or something. Only one out of ten fit the biblical criterion for leadership in a church. That's a scary thought, isn't it? So if you've got a church of 100 guys in it, there's only 10 of them that probably are even qualified 
at a minimal level to be in church leadership. Wow. What's he say about these guys? Well, if a man is blameless, it goes back to what? Timothy, right? What does it mean to be blameless? Does it mean to be faultless? Flaw. When that person's name comes to mind, a vice does not immediately come to mind along with it. Yeah, he's a good guy, but he's got a bad temper. Yeah, he's a good guy, but you know he doesn't pay his bills on time. No glaring character flaw. And that I think that implies not only when he comes to mind, but after you've done a little bit of digging. For example, um, we don't say this too often, but when Pastor Jim Menling was being considered for the pastor here at the church, we did a, a credit check on him. Why do you think we did that? Yeah, if he was bankrupt three or four times, you want that guy to be running your church? If he doesn't pay his bills on time, you want him running your church? We also interviewed people he worked with. People in the community. Why do we do that? See if he's qualified, right? Do due diligence. Now, I think you can assume that since he's our pastor, he passed those tests. All right. But the whole point is, you got to do a little bit of digging. That doesn't mean that necessarily that when we did digging, we didn't find you know, a Mr. Saint who never did anything wrong ever in his life kind of person. Nobody's going to fit that bill, right? But there's no glaring moral or ethical or relational failing in his life. There's nothing you can, you can point to. Because what will happen if there is? It's going to show up later. It's going to show up. It's going to come out at some point. Got to be blameless. Uh, the husband of one wife, what does that refer to again? A one-woman man. Someone who is devoted to their wife and only to her. Doesn't mean he necessarily is uh, married. Or what happens if you're a pastor and your wife dies? Do you become an unpastored now because you don't have a wife? No. And what about Paul? Was Paul an elder? Did he have a wife? No. No, all right. So that's not what it's talking about here. What it's talking about, and you got to get out of your old Baptistic legalistic mentality, it's talking about a man who's devoted to his wife. And I'm telling you right now that you can have a man who's been married one time to one woman, he's still married to her, but he's not a one-woman man. It's disqualified. As an elder. As an elder. If he's given over to pornography, is he qualified? No. I mean, he might be married to one woman, and technically he fits this bill, but no, there's something else there. Having faithful children. Now that's the one that's really argued about. Having faithful children. Some would say he has to have children who are really believers. What do you think it means to have faithful children? 
obedient, right? They're not little terrors like the Davis boys. No, I'm joking with you. I joke with her because I knew her sons when they were in the bus ministry. But uh, but they're not little terrors. If you're if you're an if you're supposedly to be an elder and your kids are absolutely chaotic in their behavior, what does that say about you? If you can't control your kid, you shouldn't be running the church. In fact, what should you be doing instead of running the church? Getting the kids in order. Now get your kids in order before you go get the church in order. That's really what Paul is saying here. Some say they need to be believers. Now, now let's stop and think about this. You say, well, your children have to be believers. Okay, if you're a pastor and your baby's born, technically, what should you do then? No, no, wait, wait. If they have to be believers, and you have one and two-year-olds, can you be a pastor? If they have to be believers, and you have one and two-year-olds, can you be a pastor? No, because they're not believers, right? Yet. No, I know. I'm just saying if you want to say, if you want to say, nah, the kids have to be Christians. Well, that's, that eliminates anyone whose kids are one and two and newborns. You know, it, that's not what it means, I don't it's think. Not, it's not a stretch to say the children who are of an age of consent and still under your roof must be believers. How do you know what the age of consent is? Well, here, here's a question. What does insubordination imply? What does that imply exists? No. Something more, something more basic than that. What must exist between the parent and the child for there to be insubordination? They're kids, right? Can your 30-year-old son be insubordinate to you? No. No, all right? That's okay. I think implied in these words is that there exists, there exists a children, they're children yet. They're not on their own. They're still considered part of that family. They're still part of that, of that household. They're not on their own yet. I think that's what's implied in insubordination. Okay? Does that make sense? In a way, but what, what if those kids were the elect when they were born? What do you think insubordination means? You think, does that mean, you know, well, Pastor, you know, we're, we're sorry you're disqualified for being a pastor because your son was disobedient last month and uh, you had to discipline him? Is that what it's talking about? No, that's silly, right? What's implied in insubordination? It's a pattern. It's a pattern. It's not, he's disobedient, you discipline him. That's what you're supposed to do, right, as a parent. And, I, you know, if you have most kids, they're going to be disobedient a lot, and you have to discipline them. That's not what this is talking about here. It's not saying that as a pastor you've got to have perfect kids. 
It's saying that your kids should be obedient and you sh they should be controlled. They should not have a continuous pattern in their life of insubordination. Because if they're insubordinate to you, that means you're not doing your job of raising them. Does that make sense? Then 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 in that in that extreme case, in that extreme case, there may there may be cause for that. And, and it depends, I think, on the age of the child too. You know, a seven or eight year old that's rebellious and you're punishing him and he's learning some things the hard way and he's in the process of being disciplined and going through some pain to learn to be obedient, that's one thing. If you got a 16 or 17 year old that's out zooming around and drinking and on drugs, that's something different, okay? Paul, Paul's trying to give, generally, generally, there's always going to be exceptions and you got to apply the exceptions as, as necessary, but he's trying to make a, a point, I think the big picture point is that the elder needs to be in charge of his children, and I think the word children here, if I'm not mistaken, is padilla, which is small children. It's not grown children. It's smaller children. He's to be in control over them. And in fact, if you if you get your in your little time machine and you sent back to the first century, when did a child become a not child? Twelve or thirteen years old. Why? They were considered then a child of the law. They were considered responsible. So what would this seem to imply the age of these children are? 13 or under. Alright, so they would be smaller smaller children. Think about it. Do you know elders or people, their kids are just totally out of control and they can't control them at all? You want them as your pastor? No. We're not, and, and Paul's not here. He's not talking about these kids are perfect. They never make a mistake, and they're never. But when they when they do, they are disciplined. They are under control. They are not running wild. That's a very important thing here. He's saying uh, the idea of faithful children is not believing children in this context because. Your six-year-old may not believe. They don't understand the gospel yet. Does that disqualify you as an elder? Well, no. But you can, off, you can look at that six-year-old and say, are they controlled? Can they be controlled or not? Your pastor comes to the people in the church and asks you to babysit their kids and nobody wants to babysit their kids because <laughs> it, it, they just demolish the house. Why is he your pastor? Why is he your pastor? Right? Maybe the faithfulness applies to faithful to the Father. Yeah. It's not faithfulness in terms of faith towards God. It's faithfulness in terms to the Father, I think, is what it's referring to here. And I think the text support that because it says they are not, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. All right. Now, one thing you can do here is the dissipation means debauchery. 
you can make the case, I think, and I, I think it's valid to do that, that what if uh, your pastor has grown children and those children are alcoholics, drug addicts, and prostitutes? Is he qualified to be a pastor? Well, is that the same pastor who's leading the children's ministry, overseeing the children's ministry? I mean, I'm not giving you an answer on that one. You're going to have to all figure it out for yourself. But I, Anita and I are on the same wavelength on that one. I would question his qualifications. I would question his qualifications. If if he was a pastor while those kids were... I'm not talking about a man who late in life is saved and called to the ministry and his kids have... That's water over the dam. You understand? That's, that's water over the dam. I'm talking about a man who was a pastor when his kids were born and now his kids are grown and they're drug addicts and drunks and everything else. I question his qualifications as an elder when he has raised them. That, that, that's different than someone coming to know the Lord late in life his kids are already grown. I know several pastors right here in this town whose kids are like that. And are they were they pastors? Were they pastors? They are been pastors. They come the kids come up in the church. Well, you know. Well, then why is he your pastor? Why he's they pastor? Look, uh I mean, big time stuff. You know, don't argue. Look at the text. Look at the text. You know? Eli. Eli. His children were so bad that the Lord held him accountable for God, God said, I'm going to kill your kids. And he fell over the... You know, when he found out his kids were died, he fell over backwards and broke his neck. His kids were so bad that when the women came to give their offerings, they raped the women right at the door of the tabernacle. Bad bananas. And God held Eli. Who got, who got, the, who got, well, the kids got judged, right? I mean, they died, of course. They got judged. But who was the one responsible? And why was Eli responsible? Because he was the priest, and it was his responsibility to raise his kids, and he blew it. Uh, look, you got a man who's a pastor. He's got Five kids born while he's a pastor, and they all go off into drugs and, and alcoholism and prostitution and everything else. He is disqualified as a pastor. Sorry. I don't know how else to read this text. He neglected his household. God is saying if you blow it at home, you've blown it everywhere. You, 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 can't, you can't say, I'm a success in church, but my house is a failure. Uh, no. Most of them don't study. Most of them don't study it. They don't like this part. Or are they? Are they? Are they dance around it and say, "Boy, that might apply to me." Well, we'll get rid of that real quick. So, look, all I'm saying is, I think, I think Paul, I, if Paul were to to show up today 
and were to walk in one of those churches, he would be hard-pressed to say that that man is qualified to be a pastor if Paul knew that that man raised kids in the church and they turned out the way they did. I think it's it's a general truism. A general truism. And that, what do we mean by general truism? It's not a law. It's not inviolable. But if you as a godly father raise your kids in, a, in, in, in the manner that the Bible says, I think God honors that. Does that mean that every kid will always turn out right? Not... They might, they might have some rough spots along the way, but they're not going to go off into debauchery and things like that. If you're, and if God calls you to be an elder, what does that imply? That He's going to enable you to do what? Raise the kids. If God has called you to be an elder, God's going to give you the ability to raise those kids, right? God's not saying, I'm going to call you to be an elder, but I'm going to throw you a curveball because I'm going to give you a devilish little kid here that's going to disqualify you, and you're on your own, buddy. No, he's not going to do that. I'm just, I'm just reading this. I'm saying dissipation, that, the word there, I, I'd have to look it up in the Greek text here, um, is exactly what it is. If it's a word I'm thinking of, it's a pretty strong word. It's, it's, is it asolgeia? Does Paul does, does MacArthur say what it is in his yeah. what is, is it Asolgeia? I don't know. I, I I could look it up in my Greek text here. But uh, if it's Asolgeia, Asolgeia was a pretty nasty word. I mean, it, it's it's the it refers to the drunken, brawling yeah. gangs that are walking home after right. a drunken party rioting and causing trouble and throwing bricks at lights and things like that. That's that's a Paul is saying, you, you've blown it, guy. You, you want to be an elder in the church and you can't raise your kids? It might be Asel Gay. I, I have to look it up. But that's a strong word. That's, that's a, it's, a, it's a really strong, strong word here that he's using. Um, he, MacArthur basically says, dissipation refers to grown children. Whereas the faithfulness refers to the smaller ones. Technon is the is this child. Yeah. There's paideia, which is the baby. There's brephos, which is the baby. There's paideia, which is the little toddler. And technon usually is referring to those children between the toddler and the asolgeia. So, I have to look. It, yeah, because it carries the idea of prodigality. Rebellion and riotous. Yeah. So, if your kids are doing that, guess what? You're not to be an elder. Look, I'm just, you know, 
Take the text for what it is. And why is Paul saying this? What's his point in saying this? Why does he make the, 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 mar, the, the bar so high? Yeah, the leadership needs to be pure and qualified. And if you're going to be telling people how to raise their kids and you look at your own kids and they're, they're a total disaster, shut your mouth. Don't, don't tell people. If you can't do it, don't tell people how to do it, right? It's all about character. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God. What's the idea of steward carry with it? What is a steward? We, we, don't, we, don't have, we don't use that word much anymore. A manager. And in those days, what was a steward? He was a slave. Usually he was a slave. And what was his job? The steward was over what? The steward was over the whole thing. Basically, the steward of a household was the one who was the head honcho. He was the one that managed the household for the owner. He was responsible to ensure that the needs of the household were met, that the supplies were there, that things went smoothly. That was his job. And God says the elder is what? A steward of the church. He is responsible to make sure that the church is functioning correctly and in a godly way and according to what the scriptures say. He's not the owner of the church. He is a steward. Now most pastors think what? This is my church and I'll do what I like and if you don't like it, hit the road and go somewhere else. Look, it's not their church. It's God's church. They are a steward. They are responsible. And someday they're going to stand before God and they're going to give an account of how they've managed that stewardship. And far from being an arrogant thing, a, a pastor should be shaking in his boots thinking, I'd better make sure that I'm managing this church the way God would have me manage it because I'm responsible when the master returns I'm going to give an accounting of how well or how poorly I've managed this. You're a steward of God. And he's not to be self-willed. What does it mean to be self-willed? My way or the highway? I've known some of these guys. You don't want to cross them. If you cross them, it's game over. You might as well just go to another church. Because it's their way or the highway. They rule with an iron fist. That, that sort of goes against the whole idea of gentleness. Right? Self-will has the idea that they, they are bullheaded. They are stubborn. It's their way. They want things run their way. And they're not to be quick-tempered. What does it mean to be quick-tempered? Explosive. You ever be around an explosive person? If you say the wrong thing, you might just set off the dynamite, right? You walk on eggshells. You're afraid to say anything because they might explode in anger. A pastor who is quick-tempered 
is disqualified. If he is self-willed, he's disqualified. Now, what does self-willed does being self-willed does not mean what? Yeah, so it, it, the idea of self-will here is not to not have convictions. As a pastor, you should have convictions. The idea is not everything has to be done your way. That's the point. It doesn't have to be your way, provided you're not violating some biblical principle. It doesn't have to be done your way. Let it be done somebody else's way. That's the idea of being self-willed. And quick-tempered, that's explosive. Where you allow anger to just explode. Not given a wine. What does it mean to be not given a wine? Don't be a drunk. Don't be a drunk. Now, in our day and age, what can we extend that to? Drugs. Any, any kind of thing. Smoking. Anything that controls you. Because if you're given over to much wine, what does that imply? What do you lack? You lack self-control. You lack discipline. Your character is at stake. I've known pastors that are disqualified not because they're drunks, but because they can't keep their hands off the drugs. Sometimes prescription medications. Now, you know, if the doctor prescribes something, you have to take it to live. That's different. But there are pastors that are given over to stuff that they they got to have their little shot of whiskey or they got to have their their crack or whatever it is. You're not to be given to that. What does that do? Why why is it that you're not to be given to that? What what's so bad about being drunk? What's so bad about being drunk? You're not in control of yourself. That's, that's the key. And in the Bible, there's a high premium on you being responsible for your actions. And if you're drunk, although you're responsible for your actions, you're not in control of yourself. Paul says you're not to be given away. Notice what he says. He says you're not allowed to drink it. You're not allowed to be given to it. It's not, allowed, it's not something that has to drive you that you're drunk. Not violent. What's the idea of being violent? Fighting. Or to be explosive or to, to be contentious. Quarreling. A pastor is not to be a quarrelsome person. And it says here, he's not greedy for money. Why shouldn't he be greedy for money? Why does that disqualify him? It's worldly. Can't serve two masters. What's going to happen? If you're, if you're greedy for money, what will happen to your judgment and your decisions? It'll be bought. It'll be, it'll be driven by money, not by principle. 
If you're a man who's given over to money and you want more money, you're not going to do anything that's going to threaten the potential or the source of your money. And when Mr. Big Giver in the church does something wrong, you're apt to look it over. Because after all, you don't want to defend the budget and you don't want to, your budget crushed. Or you allow yourself to be bribed, or you're allowed to self, yourself to look at rich people differently than poor people. The James 2, right? Go to now when somebody comes in and they got their, a gold-ringed man comes walking in, and you set him in a good spot, and you, some guy comes in and rags, and you stick him over in the corner. You're not to be given over to money. Money should not, it shouldn't drive you. Because it's going gonna, it's gonna to destroy your judgment. And look at how many people, look in politics how many people are ruined by money. Look at, we were talking about the, you know, the gambling a while back. People who win the jackpot, what happens to their lives usually? <laughs> Flush, you know. It goes right down the tubes. Yeah, some guy is. Yeah, she took she took her eighty five mil and went off her own way, you know. Bagged the old man. Let's go. Finally, she had a way out. She had a way out, you know. See, yeah, I like the CSI episodes, you know, where the guy wins the big jackpot and he winds up murdered because he can't. Money destroys. You love money, it's destructive. It will destroy you. It will destroy you. But hospitable. Doesn't mean I'd be hospitable. Stranger lovers. To invite people in. To have them over and be friendly. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.